Hi, friends. Uh, you're listening to the Lessons of Dead Guys podcast, a work of exile liturgy. I'm here in person with Dr. Thomas J. Ord today, which I'm super stoked to have on the show and uh, talk about his book, uh, The Uncontrolling Love of God, and talk about just all things uh, in his work and, and things like that. So, uh, Thomas, if you will, just introduce yourself really quick if you want to give us a rundown of your work, and we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, my name is Thomas J. Ord. Most people call me Tom. I'm a theologian from Idaho. I've uh, been teaching for about 20 years or so, written more than 20 books, and uh, I'm an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene, which is part of the broader Wesleyan theological tradition. Uh, I don't know, I've lived a lot of places, I like to hike, and I'm a photographer. How's that? Awesome, awesome. 20 books, that's a lot of books. Yeah. That's, that's a lot. All right, so I guess what you've recently had a new book come out, right? I think uh, it was about social media and theology and things like that. Yeah, actually, yeah, that was uh, an edited book about 90 contributors of folks doing all kinds of different technology, social media, both uh, theologians, philosophers, biblical scholars. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and so I just recently read The Uncontrolling Love of God, which is kind of my first actual... I guess stepping into the more open relational kind of, I guess, open theism. I, you didn't use that term through the book, so I'm not sure if that's exactly the term you would use. Sure. Yeah. Um, but as far as my personal walk, I guess I, I've known what open theism is. I've known of open and relational models, uh, but I've never, I guess, so far I've not d- dived into reading any of those kind of works yet. So it was really cool reading your book for the first time. Um, and also, I am a huge science buff, so uh, which is nice. one, of the, one of the first things that kind of... Um, really began to wrestle with some questions because I was a closet believer in evolution the whole time I was in evangelical, you know, Christian church. Yeah. Um, so I, I, man, I was all, you know, uh, answers in Genesis to everyone, but but the, probably the people that knew me really the closest. And so yeah. um, I was always like, you know, big into science and evolution. And but for the longest time, I didn't really have a theology to kind of make those work. I just I had to hold them in a kind of paradox, I guess. And uh, because I didn't have theology or language to even support the fact that I believed in evolution or right. basic observable science, um, so I like it that you you know you reference you reference that. I think you talk about you talk in the book a lot about evolution and different things. Um, and so in the book, uh, like I guess just would you give a kind of just a brief rundown maybe of open theism for our listeners because I sure. have a feeling that a lot of people are not very familiar or if they are, it's kind of a negative kind of view even yeah. because. Well, open theists typically have three kind of main ideas at their core. One is that God is a God of love and calls us to love. Secondly, God's a relational God, by which they mean God influences us, but we also have an influence on God. And then the third one is that for God and for us, that the future is open to the extent that God cannot know with absolute certainty what is going to happen in the future. God knows all the possibilities for the future, but the future is open. So open theists believe God knows everything. They just don't think the future is yet uh, knowable by anyone. Right. I think uh, when I first encountered um, the whole even thought of open theism was uh, Greg Boyd. I think I read a couple of blogs of his. Um, and it's, it was really intriguing. It was, but I just I stayed away for some personal reasons that I we, we can talk about in a minute. I guess uh, I've I've kind of through my season of deconstruction and through uh, reconstruction and all that I've stayed away from the topics of providence and sovereignty and <laughs> the Odyssey as yeah. much as possible. Yeah. Um, 
which I know a lot of people don't. I think that's, you know, this problem of evil is a driving factor in the majority of people's, um, especially deconstruction or walking away from church and things like that. And I, I can say that it was for me, too. Um, and just to kind of give a personal story, I was very charismatic, very Pentecostal, and not even just that, but kind of even deeply word of faith kind of charismatic. I read everything Kenneth uh, Hagen had ever written, you know, and um, so which my listeners kind of know, know some of that story. Yeah. Um, uh, but and so my son, he was born and uh, he was born early. My wife had a really hard pregnancy. He was um, he was born early and uh, one of the things that happened though is that when we brought him home, he couldn't. He was throwing up constantly and um, he had this um, genetic disorder called pyloric exenosis, which means the the basically the valves on the bottom of his stomach have grown shut. So very little food could get through his skin and bones. And I fasted and I prayed and I prayed and I fasted. And I've seen God do I've seen what you you talk about towards the end of your book. I, I've seen the miraculous. I've seen things like that uh, happen. I've seen a lot of it faked. And uh, so I've, I've seen it all. But in my mind, you know, I... I was just, I was fasting, I was fasting, I was praying, I was doing everything, but, you know, um, beating my chest and, you know, you know. <laughs> Sackcloth and ashes. Right. <laughs> and um, long story short, he didn't get better. And um, he had to have surgery, which was terrifying for us. Um, and it was a long two months before the surgery, before the doctors would even agree that that's what it was. And um, which we had figured it out because it's kind of running her family. And um, so two months he suffered two months he was skin and bones and uh then he finally had surgery and there was for two straight days he, or almost two straight days he didn't get to eat uh at all and they just had him on ivs which is awful being in the hospital as you can imagine a two-month-old not being able to eat and um and at that point i began to really question god i really began to question because i had all these formulas yeah. i had all this in my head figured out that if i prayed this way if i fasted you know that god um and i love you point out in the book you talk about it i'm not trying to get toward the end of the book yet but um you talk about how miracles are um creator and creation there right. is a dynamic there uh, and so i i that spoke to me a lot because i've agreed with i agreed with that um but almost i guess at that point in my life i had moved to more of an almost like a divinization kind of if i I'm gonna. Pr- I can pray enough and fast enough that I can yeah. move God myself. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, which tends to happen in that that realm of, of the Christian world. I yeah. think a lot, and uh, but that hit home. And my even my wife and she'll listen to this podcast. She's still recovering from that that season of her life mm-hmm. um, because we were so certain, yep. so certain, and um, it took that. And it wasn't even a life or death kind of situation, but it was one of those things that definitely rocked us. Um, and so since, since my deconstruction and recon, you know, my change kind of in perspective, I've stayed away just from those topics in general. I've just kind of, uh, adapted a mindset on the, the odyssey that if I see suffering, that's where God is. And, uh, so when I ask, you know, God, where the hell are you in this situation? It's right there in the middle of the suffering in some, in some respect. And that's kind of just been my way of dealing with it, dealing with it. And so the fact that you kind of talked about miracles a lot in the end of the book and you, you talked about um, and just your, the whole concept of relational, is it's been there, but it's been an area that I've avoided. Um, and I would say on a personal level, I've kind of moved 
uh, I've avoided the aspects of you know the you know personal savior kind of I've tried I've distanced myself from God in, in a way the relational mindset because of my background yeah. um, so your book was really refreshing it was really encouraging for me good, and um, so if you, you pointed out a few things about open theism about the fact that God being primarily love and I think when I read the book that was the thing that I probably got the most was that you're arguing for the whole thing that if God is love then the way we understand God the way we understand time the way we understand our lives in relation to God and the world and in good and evil um, has to go through that filter it has to start there could you yeah. speak to that yeah I think a whole lot of people want to say that God is loving but they have all kinds of other theological assumptions and ways of reading scripture and looking at the world that make it really hard for them to be consistent in thinking through God's love and at the heart of that uh, in my view is their notion that somehow God's power is really what comes first in God as I say in the book in kind of a technical way that for them Sovereignty is logically prior to love in God's nature. I think differently. I think love is logically prior to sovereignty. And what that means is that there's some things that God simply cannot do because love does not allow God to do so. And so that way of thinking about things is pretty radical for a lot of folks. Again, almost everybody wants to say God's loving. Right. But when the rubber meets the road, when your son has his problems, when you know, I get notes on a periodic basis from people who've been raped, people who've had miscarriages, folks who've been abused, and they read my book and they say, "For the first time, you've presented a picture of God that makes me think God wasn't standing there twiddling his thumbs while I was raped." that God wasn't just present with me in my suffering, allowing this to happen. For the first time, I can believe that God couldn't stop the rape. And that, for me, is more comforting than thinking God could and chose not to. Right. I think, um, like you said, understanding that God is love, I would say that that was the first primary thing that really shook me. I had to go back. Um, I remember reading some uh, Isaac of Nineveh and even Origen and um, even Brennan Manning that really challenged my perception that, you know, this encounter that I had early on was pure love. And I that's and it was like the theology that came later just messed it all up, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and so I had this encounter and then I had this experience, you know, the Wesleyan quadrilateral lateral you know we have these different things and we tend to not give as much influence experience but i had this experience but all the scriptural theology and the tradition i was given um almost made it null in my life and it's like so on a deep level i knew that love i knew that god was absolutely 100 percent love um but i didn't operate from that you know this still became secondary um and like you point out in the book and like you just now did and um for me, re- recapturing that was a big thing for me when I re um, approach when I approach the atonement and eschatology, all those things. Understanding from that perspective right. that God is is absolute pure love to first and foremost before anything else we can conceive that God in his pure essence is love changed everything and like I said I just haven't ventured off (laughs) into the areas (laughs) of providence yet but in sovereignty and and power and you know all these different things but I definitely think that that's radical approach and I think that some people when they hear this podcast even now or they read your book the first time you start saying God can't they're going to be oh no exactly oh Dr. Ord no 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 God's almighty God's all powerful and you know, really, a lot of our approaches to that, I think they're just 
they're outdated almost. Yeah. Well, they're not even biblical. I mean, as I point out in the book, there are many places in the Bible that talk about things that, that God can't do. It ex- explicitly uses the word cannot or can't. Right. And uh, folks don't seem to notice those, I think, because so many of us come to the Bible with the assumption that God can do anything. Right. Now, what a lot of people believe in free will, they'll say, well, God generally gives us freedom. But if God wanted to interrupt and control, and God could, and God maybe does sometimes to do a miracle or whatever. Uh, and so I don't think even folks with that mindset read things like God can't lie or God can't be tempted, let's say it in Scripture, or God can't grow tired or God uh, can't deny himself, My the one that I really emphasize right. in this book. And they, it, it doesn't even phase them because they just think, well, that can't be true. Uh, the God I believe in can do anything. Right. Right. You know, that's I, I think that's definitely the case. You know, it's like um, I think probably one of the biggest things is we have this idea that God's detached, that God mm-hmm. is right. is outside of creation. And you do a good job through the book of combating that, in my opinion, you know, that you. God is actively working in and through, sustaining. We live, move, and have our being. You know, it, it's all there, but we still – seem to, I don't know, kind of conform to these almost elementary kind of concepts. You know, this yep. God in a white beard's up in the cloud somewhere, you know, yes. just watching us do our things, and he, he decides to show up or, you know, whatever, do some yeah. off-the-wall miracle, you know, shows up his face in a pancake or something. You know, right. it, you, know you, you have all that kind of wild, just off-the-wall stuff, and it's like, you know, that if we come to a place, I like the, how you pointed out in the book, is that we come to a place of understanding that God is not, he doesn't have to step into creation to work. It's because he's already right. present in Which, creation. That's why I don't like the word inter- Right. It's one of those words that a lot of Christians use. But if you think about it, it sounds like God wasn't already present, that God had to enter in from the outside. Right. And that makes no sense. And obviously there's other ways to interpret the word intervene, but that's the way it's oftentimes used. I think also I'm, I'm really happy that you see in my book the emphasis upon God being present with us because probably one of my favorite dead guys is John Wesley. And that was a big emphasis in his theology, that God's present with us in the world. And I sometimes like to compare and contrast this Wesleyan view of God being with us and feeling the world with us because God is there and a kind of a more Calvinist view of God, which is God looks at us. The looking idea suggests a distance Whereas the feeling with suggests an intimacy. And I think the issues of love fit much better with the intimacy than they do from looking at a distance. Right. Um, I think one thing, too, is like, um, I guess for me, it wasn't, I'm just now, though I'm in the Methodist Church, really becoming acquainted with Wesley. I yeah. mean, you know, he's our patron saint, you know, <laughs> <laughs> in the United Methodist Church. You know, I've, I've, we probably have 10 pictures in any given hallway, you know, yeah. I just, you run into him all the time. Um, and I had, you know, Nazarene pastor uh, Brent Neely on, oh, you know, good. a couple months ago, and the whole episode was about nerding out about John Wesley. And I, I don't think I talked the whole time. He just, <laughs> he just poured and poured out about John Wesley. I love it. Um, um, but, you know, the one thing to me that really kind of shifted my perspective was, I guess, really kind of getting a, new, a more robust and, I guess, true incarnational theology. It was mm. just seeing that the incarnation, I think uh, Teilhard de Chardin, he put it this way. He says uh, that the creation is steeped 
in the incarnation. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, which you know he gets thrown in. You know, he, the people call him a pantheist and all these other things. And um, but you know, the, even the Christian mystical tradition, it, it, and I don't even think it has to be that extreme because, like, when I was reading your book, it what it didn't come across as this idea of God being present with us in a, this. You know that people could take it and construe it as this outside, like super mystical kind of approach. No. It was a very down to earth approach that you exactly, presented. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I, I personally love the whole uh, mystical tradition within the Christianity that talks about God's presence being with us and things like that. So it was really cool to kind of see. Not that it was, it didn't point to a greater depth of truth in in your work, but it was cool. It was just very um, that you know we have to understand this to be able to really perceive God's relation to us and perceive love to us and the fact that He's not some distant, far off, and that He's present with us and. Uh, so how you frame that in the book is really cool to me. Well, thanks. I mean, I care a lot about day-to-day, normal, mundane existence. I also care a lot about science, as you already mentioned. And those two things tend me to toward a kind of a realist view of reality. And so I'm not against the mystics, but I'm a person who wants to try really hard to give the most plausible account I can of the way God really works in our lives, in the day-to-day, in the good, and also the evil. Right. You know, and I don't think even necessarily that those have to be opposed. I think a lot of times in church we've we've kind of, um, and I'm not saying just what you're doing, but, you know, I, I think truly this mysticism of, you know, the desert fathers or, you know, aesthetical fathers and all these different things, and um, I think it... If it doesn't, if it leaves your head in the clouds, so to speak, because that's a lot of you know the mystical tradition. But I think they would argue, at least the majority would argue, that if it doesn't, you know, like the desert fathers didn't go into the desert to get away from their neighbor, they went in the desert to be able to encounter God, so they can be a good neighbor to their neighbors, yes. um, and to to embody God and, and see God in, in everyday life, and so. Um, in the Pentecostal tradition, though, there's that mystical tr- tradition that's there. There's the relational tradition, you know, the relational aspects, but God is still forever away. He's across the co- you know, he's at the other end of the cosmos, essentially. Yeah. And you have to pray and fast, and for Him to show up. And now, I I, I critique the Pentecostal charismatic church a lot, but that's. That's where I, I cut my Christian teeth. Yeah, so, yeah. of course, I'm going to critique it. But I'm so deeply appreciative of the tradition. But for me, what was something that's so lacking in that, and um, that there's that relation is there, that personal encounter, uh, emphasis on experience. But they still – it seems like they was never able to bridge the gap, um, at least modern Pentecostal charismatic traditions, to bridge the gap from that experience to the day-to-day, that it was this – outside miraculous you know is this moment that was just um transcendent of normal reality um and so like a lot of the what you talk about in the book is really cool to me because you talk about how you know these even even miracles there there are new ways for or they're just a specific or an unusual way maybe for us to encounter the reality that god already has or in a different kind of perspective um and so i love that in the book well you know one person i would recommend you maybe interview in the future who i think is an probably the, if not the, one of the leading Pentecostal scholars who would push back on the notion that God is just out there is Amos Young, Y-O-N-G. Um, if yeah. you want to do that sometime, I'll, I'll hook you up. Oh, yeah, he, yeah, yeah a- he endorsed this book. Oh, man, he's an outstanding Pentecostal, and he can give you an account of uh, Pentecostalism and the spirit moving that can overcome what I think you're correct in saying is the majority view amongst your average Pentecostals. Right. I actually just found one of his books in a free bin, and it was um, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I just that's why when I saw his name on the back of your, I thought I noticed. I remember I, I recognize his name, and it is some book on. Um, 
pneumatology or, yeah, or whatever. That's so, yeah, and so I was like, oh man, I know this guy's name. I don't remember where, so it's on my bookshelf. So it's really when I bought your book and I seen that he endorsed it, I was like, oh well, that's probably the next book I'm going to read just yeah, because you know yeah. it's right there. Um, so uh, you're you do a lot of uh, in the book. You 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 make you you do. Um, Oh God, I'm stumbling over my words. Um, back to the cannot thing. God cannot. You yeah. use this um, metaphor, and then you even carry it even further later in the book about how God can no more control, cre- even create controllable beings than a mermaid can, you know, run a marathon or a right. race. And, and then you even go on to see, you know, so you, you talk about how you know it's just Ill- a mermaid can never run a race, so God can't do it. But then you even carry it further, the, the idea that God can can out uh, the God that is truly a God of love in his very essence and first and foremost can create beings that he can control or override their free will is 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 fictitious as the idea that a mermaid even exists, much less a mermaid could run a race. Yeah, I mean, even some of my fellow open theists believe that God could theoretically create us as robots, but God has chosen not to. My view is that if God's love is inherently uncontrolling, then it's actually impossible for God to create robots, not because it's somehow limiting God's power, not some external force has got you know God's hand behind his back and saying, no, you'd like to do that, but I'm not going to let you. It's God's very nature of love that compels God to always create others who have some kind of, if not freedom, at least agency, some kind of independence and autonomy, some existence that God can't control. Right, and I think um, you know, like we, when you start saying God can't, people are immediately it throws up a wall, It'll flip out. Right, yeah. but there's all kinds of things, like you said, that we would say that God can't do. You know, right. God can't sin. You wouldn't say God just chooses not to sin. Most people uh, wouldn't. Uh, right, yeah. right. Um, and so, you know, for me, one thing um, that I would say, I guess, being the Pentecostal tradition and more Armenian tradition, one of the things that um, for me, I kind of had this idea that we have we, we have free will, but I would say that, um, and of course, I believe that there was kind of a s- set future. So I wouldn't say anywhere near open theism in the aspect that the future is yet unfolding. Um, so I believe, you know, because uh, back to the charismatic Pentecostal tradition, I don't even think it's just uh, it's specific to that tradition. But there's a lot of emphasis on being in, you know, God's, not God's permissive will, but God's perfect will. You oh, know, because yeah. God has a perfect Always destined been. will from birth to grave. You know, he's yep. got a will for you and every decision you make can affect it. Yep. And uh, so you Which can Which get- means if you do something something bad happens to you you either voluntarily do it or somebody does it to you then you have to either say somehow you got off god's perfect track and or more likely you have to then incorporate that bad thing into god's perfect track you have to say you know my divorce must have been god's will my kid dying from pneumonia must have been god's will because you know i'm just following god's perfect track in my life which I think is the wrong way to think. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that as well. And um, which I before I ever kind of left those traditions, I had kind of already come to that place. Because one thing I don't I don't know why, but it's just uh, one of the things that really clued me in was like there's so much um, and there's so much pressure I think uh, on my generation as far as marriage, especially within those traditions, marriage and finding who God's you know destined for you right. and all that. And I was like, well, what if I don't marry the person God destined for me? That means they can't marry. The person God does for the them, and, and then let it, uh, then who, who 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 how many people are going to be affected by that? Yes. Right? I tell um, you, when I talk to my students about this, my undergraduate students who are oftentimes thinking about marriage, 
and I tell them, look, you know, I don't think God has already picked out that one person for you. Now, I'm not saying that God would be pleased with you marrying just anybody, but there could be a variety of people that would be a good fit for you that God would be quite uh, feel good about. It's interesting the reactions I get. The majority of people are relieved. <laughs> right, yeah. But there are some people who aren't relieved, and they're kind of like, oh, you mean that, you know, sort of fairy tale idea that there was that one person destined for me might not be true and they're a little you know dissatisfied but the majority of people are like ha oh, now i can sort of take at this rationally think about who i am what would be a good fit you know who am i attracted to and not think that there was just the one that God predestined from all eternity for me. Right. You know, I told I told people all the time, my wife's not my soulmate, <laughs> which gets all kinds of head turning. You know, what do you mean? You're like, oh, she's not my soulmate. And I was like, those don't exist. You know. Um, and as far as now, I would say that my wife is absolutely fantastic, and she's probably the only person on the planet that would put up with me. Yes. And um, so, and maybe in that sense, but um, you know, that was something early on, and I began to see, you know, that maybe not everything is so rigid right. with God. And I I think we we tend to, and like you said, we either um, we either accept bad things and say it's part of God's plan. So that in in really, and then this is kind of a reductionist way to put it, kind of makes God a monster, right? Um, or we don't think it's God's plan, and then we beat ourselves up because we have just completely, possibly wrecked everything. You know, That's we right. have just spit in God's face and His perfect will, and so it's not healthy at all. I don't think to have that kind of mindset. But. What I find happens a lot is that people go through a difficult period, maybe like you're talking about your son earlier. And after that's over, they'll look back and they'll say, you know, I really learned something there. You know, I was closer to God or I prayed more or whatever. And so then they'll take the good that came out of it and they'll say, well, it must have been God's plan. I like to say this. God can squeeze some good out of the bad God didn't want in the first place. Right. But just because there's good that comes out of it, we don't have to then look back and say, oh, it must have been God's will. We can say God continues to work with us no matter what happens to squeeze the most good possible with our cooperation out of the bad that happened. Right, and I think in the book you talk, you you mentioned about how people were were quick to dismiss bad things as being from God, but everything good that ever happens, whether you know, like you roll into Walmart and you get a parking space at the front door, you know, we act like it's you know, thanks be to God, like <laughs> yeah. you know, it's this the God ordained this spot to be open just so we could have a good Friday, you know, yes, or, yes. or a good Monday or whatever, um, and so it, it tends to be that way, and then you have people on the opposite side that can't see God in any good, right. but the fact that there's evil in the world and you talk about that in the book is that you know well the problem of evil makes people not believe at all but yeah. if you're going to talk about the problem of evil you got to talk about the problem of good yes we so do. if those, yeah. those people that are on that spectrum if oh you know there can't be a god because there's all this evil then well how can there you know well let's talk about the problem of good because that poses just as much of a problem now we we spend the majority of our time talking about evil and and pain and suffering because of course no one likes those things so and it's easy to project on the god that it's his fault or whatever um if he is almighty and all-powerful you know in that typical language and that i guess outdated concepts are non-biblical like we talked about um but they don't want to talk about the problem of good most of the time yeah atheists uh either have a hard problem with the problem of good because there seems to be more good than what you would think should occur or they just don't have a good category to talk about things as being ultimately good or not it's just you know relative to your perspective 
And uh, so I think the problem of good creates some problems for atheists. Yeah. Now, I need to be clear. Um, atheists, at least some of them are smart, just like some Christians are smart. So right. I'm not trying to say they're just all idiots. Um, I was an atheist myself for a short period of time because the reasons I had to believe that there were a God, was a God no longer made sense to me. And out of uh, just my sake for honesty, I, in fact, you were mentioning earlier about uh, thinking about talking to your wife. I'll never forget the day my senior year in college, my fiance opened the car door and she got in and I said, I just can't believe in God anymore. Um, Man. She's now my wife. Uh, I wasn't atheist for that long because I began to come up with new, plausible reasons why it made more sense that there was a God than not. I don't know with absolute certainty there's a God, but I do think it's more plausible than not. Right. And uh, I don't want to paint atheists as like some idiots. Oh, of neither, do, neither do I want to paint them as having all the intellect either. I mean, there's smart atheists and there's dumb atheists. There's smart Christians and there's dumb Christians. Right. Um, so I want to take at, as best I can the strongest arguments from atheists, mull them over and see if they have any value. And at least theoretically, I'm open to becoming an atheist again. But I've just not come across as strong of arguments for why there's not a God as there is a God. And the problem of good is one of those things that I think atheism really can't handle well. Right, and I know in the book you you talk about uh, Richard Dawkins, and uh, you know he talks you know that everything's a selfish gene, you know it's a self you know everything's selfish and driven, and man, I, I know he doesn't in life practice that mindset. There's no way you can't you can't do that. You can't you would never in the book right do that. <laughs> you ne- you never even, you would never experience any real happiness without deconstructing it and thinking you know this is all just for self. It's you know how could you ever do good for anybody you know. Um, and, and again, you know, it's, it's, you know, like you're saying, you know, there's smart Christians, there's dumb Christians, smart atheists, dumb atheists, and it seems like there's people on both sides who don't think either is possible. You know, they, they both <laughs> sides right. have the, they have the right answers, and yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, you, you, fundamentalism knows no faith or non-faith. You know, it's it, it's there. You, you're gonna ha- you're gonna have people that are absolutely certain, no matter what, and are refusing to look at anything. Um, uh, from whatever any other alternate perspective, you know, and whether that be atheist or, or Christian or, or whatever, it's going to be that. And I, I know people. Um, I have I have really close friends that are atheists, and they're not convinced, and yeah. um, they have good arguments. Yeah, but they're not going to they're not convincing me as of yet, you know. Exactly. Um, and even even I, I just in my head, I think all the if we could logically deconstruct God as much as possible. I still have this experience that I don't. I don't have logic to even explain anyway. As much as I, I, I try to logically explain in my experience with God as much as I can, but at the end of the day, I can't. And yeah. um, and so uh, I like working in those realms of, of like you know science and things like that that you've talked about and your book talks about a lot. And um, into that, let's segue. Maybe um, was it during that period of atheism that you really began a love for science or was it the love for science that kind of drove you to that? Or how did you come to a place where you were able to hold both intention and, yeah, you know, um, I think I've always been interested in science. It didn't play necessarily a stronger, weaker role during that period. Um, uh, I was reading lots of writings from atheists, agnostics, those from other religious traditions that their arguments undercut my rather weak, views of God at the time and so I had to rethink things Um, but the issues of science are just so much at the fore of our culture, our society I mean, 
um, not everyone follows science as closely as, as others, but science plays a huge role in, in shaping the way we think about reality. And the scientific questions that emerge, I think, if you're going to love God with your mind, you've got to wrestle with them. Right. You've got to take them seriously. And so that's everything from evolution to Big Bang cosmology to neuroscience to the social science. I mean, there's all kinds of really interesting things out there. And so as a theologian and a philosopher, I want to wrestle with those and try to make the best sense out of them that I can. And for me, at the end of the day, it's saying that God is still a creator, but God, but science can give us truth about the world in which we live. And I'm in the business of doing the stuff that Teilhard would do, bringing a synthesis of right. what I think is the strongest in religious faith and the strongest in, this, in science. Right. I think I really I think that's so needed, which I think there's a lot of voices, yours, and um, there's a lot of voices that are that are in that kind of um, that that dynamic between the two. Uh, but still, it seems like for so much of the Christian tradition, especially here in, in America, it's so, you know, science is just the yes. devil. You yeah. know, it's like all of it, you know, but I think a lot of it is that really um, we just we don't have a good even a good co- like thinking thinking about like cosmology and things we don't even all of those things are just so even from a theological perspective our theolo- our cosmology's off um, and a lot of our views as far as are very almost Newtonian even about God or mechanic mechanistic you know we think even people that believe in free will like we talked about they have this idea that God has this predetermined future and yes. and all these things um, I it wasn't really hard for me to kind of transition when i first kind of i guess entertained a little bit of the open theism thought as far as the future still being open um that wasn't that didn't really offset me much to begin with um and then when i read your book it was just really good um really good good solid stuff and so in my head that that makes it makes absolute sense to me um because i'm not at a place where i think god is determining everything and so um but the thing I think that shook me the most was uh, when I first started realizing that God is, in his essence, is fundamentally different than what this almighty, all-powerful, I can just snap my fingers and do whatever. Yes. Um, which I think is super important. And um, But in the book, uh, you talk about everything. You frame your view of open and relational theology through a, what you call essential kenosis. Um, which, you know, the word kenosis, uh, it's found in the Bible, and in the, in, um, it's translated different ways, uh, self-emptying. Uh, and I think in the book you, you primarily focus on self-giving, um, which I like. I liked it a lot. I like that approach a lot. And um, But I think what in, you pointed out in the book is that the whole debate over kenosis for the longest time had to do with Christ's nature and as far as being fully divine and fully human. But uh, And you pointed out in the book that um, as of late and kind of now it's more about how God's essence and how he's operating in and through the world. And that's you, you work from that paradigm. So could you um, maybe sum up maybe uh, essential kenosis for our listeners yeah. and talk about that for a minute? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that many in modern scholarship think that kenosis is a way of talking about how Jesus tells us something about God's nature or essence. And there are a lot of especially academic theologians who like the kenosis language but they end up uh, promoting what I call a God who is voluntarily self-limited. This is a God of Jürgen Moltmann, the God of John Polkinghorne, the God of uh, lots of folks today. And this God is a God who decided not to control and continues to decide not to control, at least most of the time. God might occasionally become unself limited 
to do something. But most of the time, God is making a decision voluntarily not to be controlling. I don't like that position for a number of reasons. And one of them is that the God who could control, it seems like should control to prevent really atrocious evils. Uh, If you're, I mentioned the girl being raped earlier. If you're the girl who's raped and you think that God could become unself-limited to control the rapist and get you out of that, surely you're going to think a loving God would do that. Right. I sure would. So the voluntarily self-limited God doesn't solve this problem of evil that I think is central. Now, there's other theologians and other positions that speak as if there's some kind of exterior forces to God that are constraining God, be they principalities and powers, be they metaphysical laws, be they the God-world relationship. All these kinds, this language sounds like God is constrained by external forces and powers. I'm not buying into that view either. Essential kenosis says that God's limitations come from God's own nature, not from outside, but also not voluntarily chosen. And that means that God's nature is love. Love is primarily self-giving, others empowering, and therefore can't control. So God doesn't make a choice not to intervene in the sense of controlling. God can't do so because God's nature is love, first and foremost. Right, and you know, I think a lot of people, when they first hear that they think well that means god's weak yeah a but, lot of people do yeah. and i respond to that well let's talk about what god can do right and um the word i like to use to talk about god's power is the one that most english translators of scripture use and that's the word almighty i think god is almighty in at least three senses god is mightier than all others in other words god has no equal to use some biblical right. language Two, God exerts might upon others, which is just another way to say that God's providential presence is active in the world. God's creating, sustaining, acting, influencing, but never controlling. Right. And then third, God is the source of might for all others. And what I mean by that is that God is the one who makes it possible for us to act. God acts first, and then we can respond. We're unable to act. Right. God can be almighty in all three of those instances and yet not be able to control. So I think God is the mightiest. I'm even comfortable with saying almighty. But almighty doesn't mean the capacity to control. Right. I think, you know, first, even like just the term almighty, the first thing people are going to think of is this. I don't know. For me, like just even hearing the term, like the my first place my mind goes is this, you know, super powerful like just super powerful you know yes. you know holy other separate being who can yeah. just do whatever he wants Zap. whenever he wants right yeah you know, he can fling lightning bolts he can snap his fingers at people who become ants he can you know yes. he can make the world flat he can do whatever he wants whenever he wants however he wants when you think about like hollywood when they make a movie about god they call it Bruce Almighty. Yeah, right. They don't call it Bruce All Loving. Right. <laughs> because they've got in their mind, like most people do, they think of the God's power first and they want it to be unlimited by anything. Well, I want to say, no, God's nature of love limits what God can do. Right. God's still powerful. God's almighty in the way that I described it. But God doesn't have the kind of capacity to zap something to control it. Right. And, you know, I think, um, and you spend some time with with Jesus and the cross and being, you know, this kind of the the perfect picture of what this 
this loving, uh, uncontrolling God is. And I think, you know, I mean, Jesus hangs on the cross and says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He, yes. he, he's brutalized. He, he takes into himself the worst that we can possibly offer, yep. um, and he regurgitates it as love and forgiveness and as mercy. And um, even just in a purely kind of the life of Jesus sense, comparative to the to the gods of whatever other religions, even the gods of uh, most of what we, the god of what we think of so much as being the god and father of Jesus, he is comparatively weak in, in the sense of what we, we would say we would think weak. We, any god, I mean, a god that can be killed, right? Can, is What kind of god can be killed? And, yeah. But that's the absurdity of this whole thing, I think. You know, Paul talks about it, you know, the, the cross is absurd. It's, it's absolutely just, it shames the world because it doesn't make sense it's foolishness to the world and i think that speaks to that it speaks to the the, it points to this nature that god is truly love and uncontrolling and is even to the point that he is willing to let us inflict pain and suffering on himself right yeah which is this is our fullest revelation our clearest revelation of who god is it seems to me that that plays in favor of my proposal god jesus seems to be one who doesn't control. Jesus seems to be one who doesn't try to dominate, uh, manipulate, and one who finally is killed on a cross. Uh, that's a powerful expression of a God who is uncontrolling. As right. I see it. <laughs> right. And you know, it's it's. I think that in just just looking at the the incarnation, just looking at the life and death of Jesus. I and I've said this before on the podcast. The majority, it seems like Western Christianity, we only want Jesus for his blood. We just need him to atone so we can get to heaven, you know, right? So we're like vampiric Christianity. We just want Jesus for his blood, um, and we don't want him for the life that he expresses and the way that he lives his life and calls us to live it. But we definitely don't want um, that clearest expression. You know, we 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 want Jesus being you know the Word of God, Jesus being the image of God just to be a, a checklist on uh, a list of beliefs we can check off and go about our day and not let it really combat these ideas that when we see Jesus, when we see the things Jesus does and what Jesus allows, we see not only just how God responds to us, but we see the very essence of God at work before us and yeah. in, in, in flesh. We see the very essence of God in flesh showing us that He's not going to control, that he's not going to swing a sword, that he's not like these other gods who fling lightning and fire (laughs) and destroy and um, is in in the very just normal, irrational sense is irrational sense is just is weak comparative to Mars or Zeus or or whoever else. And um, I think that one of the biggest problems is we don't uh, problems with like um, especially within evangelical culture with like uh, nationalism and, and support of war, support of violence because we don't want a weak God. We 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 like that Jesus got us to heaven, but we want the Jesus of Revelation in our mind. We want the Lion, um, which you know compare which really is just. You don't get the lion in Revelations if you actually read it. You don't get it. Slaughtered lamb. Right. (laughs) Behold, I heard a lion and turned and saw a lamb slaughtered who appeared to have been slaughtered. Um, So, you know, we, oh, Jesus came as lamb, but he's coming back as a lion. So even today, we, we just want, we don't want anything about. The Jesus to change what we think about God in his life and the incarnation because in our minds we still think God is this warrior, tribalistic powerful God who's going to for some, a lot of Christians burn the world to the ground, you know Well, um, I think we all want to win Right, that's good and I'm one of them actually, I want to win I just think the way you win is through love right. not coercion and winning through love means patience it means transformation 
It means sometimes self-sacrifice. It means having the long view in mind, not the short, quick fix. Right. And so I'm a person who wants to win, but I think love is the way that ultimately can be satisfying in winning. Right. And, you know, this this whole idea that God is... is is limited in his very nature because his love is just it's contrary to a lot a lot of what we want Definitely. and um because like you said we we want to win we want a god that's on our side that's going to show up and kick butt exactly. you know and kick butt god right and yep. it's a uh, it's an us and it helps you know um kind of work on that scapegoat mechanism it helps us you know we can we can collectively say they're not us and so we are again you know so they're not for us and we're not for them you know we we use god as a way to separate ourselves from other people uh, and we use religion which is just odd to me because religion is is about you know reconnecting re you know re, re so it, it's just to me it's just wild that we we're so still so much we're so far I mean we're two thousand years out and I still think we're the early church we're still yeah. all kinds of problems <laughs> all kinds of dis- disagreements all kinds of just still not figuring this thing out yet what I find often is the case not only amongst sort of your average Christian in the pews but even amongst some of the smartest academics is that they, even though they will say with their mouth that they don't think God is, you know, controlling things, when it comes to the problems of evil, they retain that controlling God kind of in the background. Right. And therefore they have to appeal to mystery left and right for why God didn't prevent all these atrocities. And um, my book is an attempt to say there's another way to think that doesn't have to play the mystery card that says, no, God really is loving. God can't control, so you don't blame God for failing to prevent them. Right. And um, that is, it's. I'm happy to say it's catching on as a view, but it's still not the dominant view. Right. So what was it that brought you kind of this more open to open theism? What was the, I guess, what was your first step into this kind of mindset? Well, I mean, the main thing was the love stuff that we've already been talking about, but there were other things as well. Um, I had a genuine sense that I had some measure of freedom, and so I wanted a free will theology of some sort, and open theism has is a free will theology. Right. I wanted to take seriously the natural world, and uh, although there are some voices in the sciences that say that we're determined, there's others that say, no, you know, that doesn't make any sense. You're, you're imposing a metaphysical framework on your interpretation of the data. You can have a... It seems like in some world, the ways the world is opening up to new things. There's novelty, there's change, there's movement, there's process in the world. Right. And so open theism really fits that kind of way of thinking. It fits the sciences, generally speaking, in those ways. Um, and, you know, the relationality stuff that we've talked about, I seems pretty obvious to me that I'm affected by what goes on in my world and I have an influence in the world. Right. And thinking about God as both being an influencer and being influenced just made a whole lot of sense to me. I really, I mean, this, obviously I'm, I have my own perspective on things. I'm biased in some ways, but I just can't read the Bible now in a way that seems makes it seem like God is not open. Uh, right. You know, there's so many instances in which the Jesus, or God is said to repent in the Bible, right. have a change of mind. There's so many times God says in covenants, you know, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, I will do X. But if they don't, I will do Y. I'll pluck them out of the land. It sounds like 
the, we have freedom and what God's going to do hasn't been decided yet. Right. And that fits with the openness way of thinking so well. So while I do admit there are a few biblical passages that don't fit well with open theism. Right. Uh, you know, like uh, Jesus somehow knowing that before the cock crows twice, Peter's going to deny him three times. I mean, that's like a weird thing to figure out. Right. Open theists have got a few proposals on the table for how that could happen. I personally don't think those proposals do a slam-dunk job on them. Right. But I think the preponderance, the majority of Scripture, supports an open theistic perspective. And I'll go with the majority on these kinds of issues because they fit well with a God who's a God of love that I think is at the very core of the Bible. Right. Um one thing I love that in your book, you the whole thing. There's so much you know relational. We keep saying relational, but there, you focus so much on this dynamic relationship between creator and create and creation. Um, in so much as that, like when you talk about miracles and, and different things, you know how how there's more at play than just God just arbitrarily snapping his fingers and someone that's lame, you know, being able to walk or someone, you know, you know, or just whatever you know we think miracles. What yeah. and we. And I like in the book you kind of frame it that you know there's there's a lot more miracles than what we really realize because we had that mindset like we talked about earlier that God's outside so it has to be this dramatic otherworldly almost thing in our head for it to be considered a miracle but yeah. uh, God is active and present in the world with us right now like we talked about in the begin- uh, early in the podcast and so from that mindset uh, many things then become miraculous in a way yeah. many things then become these expressions uh, of God's canonic love in, in the world around us interplaying with us and our receptivity to the, to his love and uh, and not being about control or him just snapping his fingers and arbitrarily making whatever happen because he just decided to do it right yeah, yeah. Um, and so the truth is, when I was writing this book, I was working with my editor, David Congdon, really great guy. And uh, I had laid out what I wanted to say, and it was going to end in chapter 7. And I was writing chapter 7, I thought to myself, I know what a bunch of my friends are going to say. They're going to say, yeah, but what about miracles? You know, that's exactly when I was reading, when I got, was in chapter 7, I was like, well, what is he going to do? What is he, what is he going to talk about? Yes. These, these things. So that was... Yeah. So in some previous books, I've dealt with the resurrection of Jesus, but I haven't really laid out a a theology of miracles. So I said, I've got to write this last chapter on miracles. So I started looking at the literature, uh, scholarly literature, etc. And I found that there was very few clear definitions of a miracle. Um, You know, some of them had an intervening God, which, again, sounds to me like God isn't already present. And so that wasn't going to work for me. Uh, in the sort of philosophical realm, David Hume's ideas about miracles really dominate. And one of his major views is that miracles are interruptions of the natural laws. Well, there's a lot of problems with that view. One of them is we don't really know what the natural laws are. Right. But even more, even bigger, is that people I know who say they've experienced a miracle don't stand up and say, praise God, the natural laws have just been interrupted. Right. They just don't talk that way. Right, And so I wanted something that, a way to talk about miracles that seemed to fit the way people talk about miracles, and especially the way Bible, the Bible talks about miracles. So I decided that one element had to be that miracles were in some way unusual. Right. Because some people think, you know, all of life is a miracle, and I'm not in that boat. But most of the time we think of some, a miracle as something that's out of the ordinary. Right. Secondly, they had to be good. Uh, you know, no one runs around and saying, you know, the Holocaust, boy, what a miracle. Right. You know? 
Right. So it's a good thing. Now, good is subjective. I get that. But there's also some capacity for objectivity because, again, we don't run around saying the Holocaust was good. Third, and this was the key one, miracles are God's special action in relation to creation. And as I started looking at the Bible, especially Jesus' miracle stories, over and over and over, I find Jesus talking about some contribution to the people involved, whether he talks about the faith of the person or, you know, when the, uh, the, the guys bring their buddy on a stretcher and take off the roof of the house and lower him in, right. Jesus looks up at them and says, your faith has made this guy well. So that seemed to me to be really obvious ways to talk about how creatures have some kind of contribution to make in this. And in fact, Jesus can't do miracles in his hometown because they don't right. have faith. Now, of course, I immediately started thinking of all the people in my life who have blamed victims for their lack of faith. You just didn't have enough faith to believe God could you know, heal you from cancer and that's why you died. Well, I mean, this is the same thing with me with my son. You know, I just exactly. wasn't having enough faith. I didn't have enough faith. Yeah, you know? and that sucks. I don't believe that's the case. No, me neither, because, not now. Um, all kinds of people I know want to say yes to God. They want to say you know, they're trusting in the best they know how and they still have cancer and die. Right. So I said, you know, we need to go beyond just the person in their mind or heart or whatever you want to think of the center of a person's will. What about the other elements that make up our bodies, our cells, our organs, our bones, etc.? Um, we all know that we actually can't control them entirely. Right. I can't decide, uh, you know what, stop pumping blood through my veins right now. My body just keeps doing. There's all kinds of things that seems to be involuntary in that way. So I begin to think that maybe what we need to talk about is that there are other elements and actors in our bodies that don't cooperate or can't cooperate or there's some forces that make it the case that even God, who can't control anyone or anything, including cells, isn't culpable for not healing some people who have plenty of faith. Right. So that when we go to the altar and we pray and someone's not fit and not healed, we don't have to say, well, you must not have had enough faith or this wasn't a part of God's plan or God needed another angel in heaven when you die, whatever, oh, yeah. you know. We could say, look, um, the conditions were such that your cells were not able to cooperate or the conditions were such that God could not control things in your body or in the world, etc., and that overcomes what I think is a really big issue that I call the problem of selective miracles. Right. And that is, you know, we pray, and at least my my percentage of answered prayers when it comes to healing is pretty low. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and most churches I've been in, we prayed for a lot of people who haven't been healed. Right. So um, instead of saying, you know, God doesn't care about you or your cancer is part of God's plan, we can say, you know, God really does care. God's doing the utmost, but the conditions are not right or there's not some sort of cooperation in your body. And therefore, we don't blame the person for lack of faith. We don't blame God. We say this is the way things are given God's uncontrolling love. Right. You know, I think uh, there's a lot of that shaming happens. I was... Yes. Um, Right after, um, or actually on the decline out of when I was kind of hitting that place where I stepped out of ministry and ultimately stepped really out of being in a part of a local congregation for a while, um, I went to a church, um, and there was a kid that was deaf, and um, 
everybody in that place prayed for that kid. I mean, every pastor was there. You know, they were hands on his forehead, screaming, shouting, just going on and on and on. And at the end of it, um, the pastor said, told the whole congregation, I mean, it was like 30 minutes. It was just a circus. I mean, everybody was giving it their best go, you know, trying to heal this boy. And uh, at the end of it, the pastor says uh, he wasn't healed because he is uncertain. Or basically, he he said that um, he wasn't healed because he didn't want to be healed. Uh, And see, that boy walked off, and he's deaf, so he didn't hear what he said, but his mom did. And his mom was right there beside me. And he turned around, and he just had this look of disappointment as he was walking back to his pew. Yeah. And his mother just broke. Yeah. And um, that was one of the first things early on that I was like, Something's wrong. we we got to figure something out better <laughs> yeah. than this. I remember when I lived in Kansas City, my wife worked at a Pentecostal uh, school. And part of that meant we had to attend church there because she was a, a teacher. And it was 5,000-member church, big. Yeah. And uh, we'd go Sunday after Sunday. And several Sundays, the pastor would say, I feel the spirit moving today. There's some people out here who are dealing with colds and runny noses. There's some people with migraines. I'm here to tell you God's powerful. He's going to heal you. And we had people sitting behind us dealing with leukemia. And I thought to myself, you're trying to tell me that that is what God is most concerned about, migraines right. and colds and not leukemia. Right. You know, if God's really present here and can do anything, then let's take care of this one. <laughs> right. And that never got taken care of. People stood up and said, witness to losing their migraines. But what about these major debilitating things? Right. And that got me to, uh, you know, it made me cynical for a little while, but it made me push to think about my uh, theology in new ways. Yeah, yeah. Um you know, that's for me. That was the same thing. I remember walking up to the lead pastor of that church after that whole circus. Yeah, and I was so mad, oh. and it was just because, like, it was just like as of recently, I had that paradigm shift. If you're listening, there is a really beautiful <laughs> cuckoo clock. I guess I guess it's not a cuckoo <laughs> clock on the wall here. Yes, uh, we are in the home of Keith and Ann uh, Norin, who are the parents of my pastor Todd Norin Hints, uh, and they have this beautiful clock on the wall, and it, it just went off. I guess because it's <laughs> a certain time. But anyways. Um, so after the whole circus, I um, was fuming. I was so yeah. mad. It was just it, – it, it didn't seem like it was that much before that. But I guess I just had that shift. And I just remember walking out of the pastor, and I looked at him and I said, you killed that boy, mm-hmm. and uh, which is <laughs> over-the-top language, yeah. of course. But, you know, I was young and mad, and he was like, what do you mean? I was like, you know – I said, you didn't see his devastation. He was like, oh, it'll be fine. And I was just – I was like, you were wrong. And um, – which, you know, in Pentecostal areas, coming and confronting a pastor like that is completely taboo. Yeah. And, um, you know, you you honor the man of God. But I was just I was fed up with that whole thing, which, of course, I was pushing a lot of probably my own frustrations with myself and theology out yeah. into that situation. But I just remember he was like, you don't believe we can fast and pray and heal. And I was like, I don't believe there's a formula. And I all I know is that you sent that boy home making him think that. God didn't heal him because he didn't want it enough. Yeah, yeah. And there's probably nothing more in the world that kid wants more than anything to be able to hear exactly. like everybody else. I want to um, overcome that kind of crap. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I want to make sure that I don't come across as like against all Pentecostalism. Oh, yeah. Because I know you don't think this, but I think that Pentecostalism has given a great gift to the world 
in reminding us that God can do new things. Right. That God's active. Now, in the way that gets expressed theologically, I sometimes have real problems with it. Right. But uh, there are open Pentecostal theologians who, you know, uh, think at least similarly to me on these sorts of things. I don't want a uh, God who is the deist God, who's out there never involved. Right. As you know, I'm a relational the- theologian. God's right. always involved. So what I do makes a difference to God and to me. And I think at its best, Pentecostalism can affirm that in ways that other traditions don't do a very good job at affirming. Well, I, I agree with that. I do. Um, because that's what I said, you know, like for me, it, so much of that relational, personal experience yes. with the Spirit of God is um, no matter how much, at the end of the day, no matter how much I questioned and got rid of theology and had all these questions, I couldn't separate that experience, that relational experience I had. I could not, yes. I can't, I could never deny that. No matter how I could deny every piece of theology or every, you know, I could figure out some reason why it was all wrong, but I could never logically or uh, come to a place where I could deny what I experienced in that relation no. um, with the Spirit of God. God, and I'm, I'm super thankful for the Pentecostal Church for it. Super good, thankful. Good. Um, one thing as far as miracles that I, I was kind of surprised, not necessarily surprised with, uh, but I was glad you tackled it. So like you said, you added that kind of chapter in. It was late. Yes. So it's, it's good. I think it's really good that you're, you know, that that happened. Um, because it seems like to me that a lot of people, especially people that deal with science, that uh, affirm natural sciences and, and view uh, Christianity from those perspectives, and you point out in your book, they just want to knock off miracles altogether all of it's just it's all narrative it's all mythic it's all psychological st- right yeah. you're just going to get rid of all of it and so to me when i read your book that was what i was expecting um not because uh, just because in my mind that tends to be people i guess yep. that are more um not in that fundamentalist kind of approach to christianity that's that's pretty much the norm it seems like and um and maybe it's just a limited experience on my part but it seems like the majority of people we just um we just we can't really reconcile those things theologically so we just we wipe them off as as mythic or whatever and someone who has been super influential to me was marcus j borg um despite me disagreeing with him vehemently on things like a lot of these miracles and, and things like that but uh, a lot of his perspectives um, I really appreciate it because he, he, he pushed me to reconsider a lot of things and, and challenge things but even uh, not even that extreme but people that do affirm the divinity of Jesus still have it seems like all in that I guess camp and I'm not putting you in a camp per se no, but no. you know they they have a hard time dealing with those things so they either just get ignored or chalked up chalked up as psychological or mythic or just later additions to the gospel narratives that yep. weren't historical to Jesus or, or whatever um, and so like you you affirm so much to the book that you know I believe in miracles I believe in these things you yep. know um, so that was really refreshing because I, I yeah. honestly didn't expect it just because it yeah, seems like I totally understand that yeah yeah because uh, what a lot of people think they have to choose between is a mechanistic universe totally explained by the laws of nature and everything that we might call a miracle is either faked or it's just psychological it's all in our heads right that's one option the other option is you know it's the kind of miracles that i don't believe in these supernatural interruptions where god controls things and and then we have all kinds of questions about why god doesn't control some things to do miracles and all the problems that i mentioned and i said to myself writing this book look i believe that god is god of love I believe God is active in the world. 
I believe what I do makes a difference to God and to others. So I need to affirm miracles, at least in a general sense. What I need to do is be more specific and try to refine what we should mean when we talk about miracles. Right. So that we could actually believe what I think is a very important part of the, the biblical tradition and the, uh, the way of talking about God's love in the world and also affirm science. Right. And I think I can do both. Right, I agree. I, and I think the way you presented the book is just brilliant, Thank really you. good. Thank you. Um, on Supernatural, my um, my friend, um, Michelle Ramsey, she's, bril- she's brilliant. She's um, She's got a doctorate and uh, just brilliant, her and her husband both, Jackie. Um, she's, she told me what she they Jackie came from a Pentecostal background, and she kind of, when she married him, kind of got in that, but she didn't grow up in that area. Um, and so, of course, there's supernatural this, supernatural that. Yeah. And um, she just kind of put it, it was just kind of, it was funny, but kind of uh, an interesting way. She, for her, what she understands supernatural is that um, you think about like, um, you go to McDonald's and you you want a supersized meal, right? You don't get some otherworldly meal. Or a super meal means more. So, like in her her mindset, supernatural is more natural, more just. It's not some otherworldly kind yeah. of thing. It's just the natural God working within the natural world in an unusual way, the way you yeah, put it. But, yeah, and yeah. so we, we, we distinguish it from just some Lord, ordinary thing. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's not non-natural it's it's still natural and so like you know you had that argument like you talked about it oh it's miracles are breaking the laws of nature the natural laws and the natural governance of the universe but for her that was just ridiculous it just it's just more in a way it's more natural it's more you know um more god you know more saturated it wasn't god intervening it was just what was already natural being experienced in a supernatural and a, a more natural and a more perfect in uh, sense. And so uh, I've always just loved the way she put that. I just thought it was, it's, it's funny. It's kind of a quirky way to think about it, but yeah, um, good. Like I've never that. been able to hear the word supernatural after that and not think of <laughs> like supersizing a, a fry at McDonald's. But <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know, Sally McFaig over here, uh, Todd Vanderbilt, she has a book that I used to have my, um, I used to teach a class on backpacking in nature, and we would hike for a week and talk about God. That's awesome. And she has a book that's called Super, Natural Christians. Supernatural Christian, yeah. but there's a comma there. And that's something similar to what you said. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and so I guess just we've been going for about an hour, and I know it's getting late, and you got a busy day tomorrow. Um, I'm hoping to make it to your lecture. Good. I uh, I have youth, so if I do come, I'm going to be, like, bolting out the door to get there. Yeah. Uh, but um, just in, in closing, you know, I just uh, I guess to sum up for everybody, um, essential kenosis is this – idea that fundamentally God is a God of love before he's a God of power before he's a God uh, of anything else he's a God of love and is limited by that love not by outside constraints not by some other force or even self uh, limiting because if he was self limiting in the face of evil then uh, in many ways people they get mad about this but they would they would say that or I would say that well that makes God to blame Um, and so in a way I don't don't think this is probably the best way to put it but in a way this kind of approach of a central kenosis it kind of gets God off the hook for suffering it makes us and and not just it gets God off the hook and we're just left to suffer but it it gives us a a dynamic way to in my opinion um, relate to God through suffering and while we're during suffering not necessarily through suffering but uh, relate to God 
and understanding that it's not necessarily some some things are just random some things are just this cause and so um I just really love that. I just love the whole book. Thank um, you. I don't know that before I would call myself an open theist, but I think I'm pretty convinced. Good. Uh, oh, that's I good think to hear. Uh, I think I'm pretty convinced. Um, being a Tayar, which my listeners know, I love Tayar Deschardins, oh, which so do I. he gets he gets so thrown into the. The, I think a lot of times he gets thrown into the process camp. Right, yeah. Um, but his relational experience with God, I don't think really corresponds with a lot of what I understand of process theology. Yeah. Well, there's the diversity um, in process thought, Right, too, so. right. And so I don't know anything of Whitehead, really. Um, yeah. So anytime I ever mention Taylor, they're like, oh, you, you like process theology? I'm like, oh, I don't really have the language to even yeah. agree with you on that. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I man, your book was great. It well, was just really you. good. In closing, I just want to really reaffirm that it was good. Yeah. And uh, let me um, let me say something in closing to respond to that. Um, I think to solve the problem of evil, there's actually five things we need to affirm. All right. And the one that's been the stumbling block is what this book addresses, and that's what I sometimes call the theoretical issue. Why wouldn't a loving and powerful God prevent genuine evil? The book I'm currently writing is including the other four dimensions as well. So um, I'm so bold as to say I'm offering an actual solution to the problem of evil, not just a reply or an answer. All because right. it's, not, it's a solution for why God doesn't prevent it. But the next book is going to talk about how we have a role to play, how God's a suffering God who suffers with us. Uh, God is working to squeeze good out of evil, these kinds of things. So, um, you know, maybe when I finish that, we'll we'll have another conversation. All right, that sounds good. You got a title for it yet? Uh, I'm still working on one, so I don't. I better not. I feel it. like that's just the trickiest part, right? Yeah, the, that's yeah, the hard yeah. part. Writing the book's easy. Just coming up with a good yeah. title is all the work. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, awesome. Thank you so much yeah, for coming yeah. on the show. It's, it's been, been a my blast. Pleasure. Thanks a lot, so, Ryan. All right. Hey, guys. Um, so in the show notes, there will be links to Thomas's uh, website. Uh, you will also have uh, links to his book. I highly recommend you get it. Um, it's a really, really good read. It's going to push you, um, even if you're maybe more open already to uh, open theism. I think uh, it will even push you a little further because what I even knew of open theism um, – just very briefly uh, still had this idea that God was self-limiting. And so uh, Dr. Ord just completely targets that in this book, that God is not self-limiting, willfully self-limiting, but that in his very nature is limited in, in being able to control us. And so I think it'll push you. Uh, I really enjoyed the book. Again, there'll be links and everything in there. And One more thing, sorry. No, good. For Come your on. listeners, um, I have an offer. All right. Um, if you're a person who likes to listen to podcasts, which you must be because you're listening to this, <laughs> I have a audio recording of the entire book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, eight different segments. I'll give you free. All you have to do is Google my name, the book title, and audio files, and a link will come up that you put in your, your email address. You'll get the downloads for all eight chapters. The only catch is you have to listen to my voice because right. <laughs> I'm reading the book. Well, you know, they made it an hour and ten minutes so far uh, with <laughs> and not all of yours. So I think if they made it this far, they definitely can do that. That's it. awesome. Yeah, yeah, so go for that. That's free. No, oh. co- no cost. All right. And I think uh, I think if they listen to it for sure, they'll end up wanting to buy it. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm new to the world of audiobooks, but it seems like every time I listen to audiobook, I have to go buy it too. Yeah. You know? Well, so the downside is you don't get any of the footnotes and some right. of those things. And so if you want those, you need the book. All right. And so is there um, maybe I could 
get that link and go ahead and just put it in the show notes for people yeah, to click and set it up. Top of my head, we could. You, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can yeah, do it I'll, yourself. I'll yeah, make sure it's in the show notes, notes yeah, so they don't sure. even have to go Google it. It'll be right there for you, and you can uh, uh, capitalize on this offer from uh, yeah. Dr. Thomas Ord uh, to get this audio book, which I recommend. I mean, if you if you're skeptical about buying it, what better way to know if you you're going to enjoy it if you're going to be challenged by it than listening to it for free, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's yeah. an awesome awesome offer. Uh, and so, guys, just be sure. Um, we would love for you to rate the show. Uh, we have well over 100 subscribers typically, and we don't have that many ratings <laughs> on iTunes. And I know if you're not on an uh, iOS device, it's kind of just out of the question for you. Uh, but if you're on an iOS, you're on, you got iTunes, you got a Mac, you're on uh, your iPhone or iPad, it would just mean so much for me if you rated the show. It helps us get more visibility. It helps people see the show. Um, also, it just makes my day. So if you could rate it, and uh, also in the show notes, if you want to subscribe to the newsletter, which is called Sign post uh, you can do that there and uh, there'll be a link in the show notes for that and also because mainly the reason that's going to be beneficial to you is um, not only do you get to hear me on a weekly basis but you get to read um, you know all this stuff that I'm going to send you in your email but uh, coming in Advent we're having this devotional and to get it for free you have to be a subscriber and I've been working so hard uh, to get it done and designing it and the layout and all the articles so um, it's going to be an Advent devotional based around Tayard, uh, Deschardins kind of thoughts. There's going to be prayers, there's going to be practices for the season of Advent and uh, daily reflections. And so if you're a subscriber to that uh, newsletter, you're going to get it in your inbox the first day of Advent for free. If you're not, you're not going to get it. So what do you got to lose, right? 